You're listening to the free edition of Sweden in Focus from The Local. If you would like to listen to a full-length version of the podcast, as well as an additional midweek episode, please check the episode notes for details on how to upgrade to Membership Plus. Here's this week's free edition. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to Sweden in Focus, the local's weekly news podcast. We're recording this episode on Wednesday the 20th of December and this is the last regular episode of the year. But we will continue to bring you the podcast over the Christmas and New Year, first with a review of 2023, followed by a look ahead to 2024. But this week we'll talk about travel news and what to watch out for if you're on the move this Christmas. We'll catch up on the giant straw goat in Jävla to see if it's like to survive the season. We'll look at what chance we have of seeing a white Christmas in Sweden. We'll tell you what we know about rumors of a new political party. And finally, we'll discuss Sweden's much talked about international talent shortage and the extent to which companies are failing to employ skilled foreigners already living in the country. I'm your host, Paul Omani, and I'm joined here in Stockholm by James Savage. And with us from the Malmö studio, we have Becky Waterton. How are you both? Really well, thank you. Full of the joys of the festive season. (laughs) How about you, Becky? I'm good. I still have a little bit of whatever plague that has been plaguing me for the past few weeks. So I will apologise if my voice is a bit hoarse. Hopefully you can forgive me. Everyone has the plague at the moment. It's just, Mm -hmm. we we don't have to worry about the plague anymore. Luckily, I'm alone in the studio today, so I'm not going to infect anyone, which is nice. (laughs) And what are your plans for Christmas, Becky? Uh, I'm flying to the UK on the 22nd. Mm. So that's my plans. James, how about you? Any Christmas plans? I'm staying in Sweden and I have my parents coming. But I got Christmas kicked off uh, in style last last night. I went to a festival of nine lessons and carols at Stockholm Storkyrkan, the cathedral in Stockholm. They'd taken the English service of nine lessons and carols, which is very famous, sends its broadcast from Cambridge every Christmas Eve. And they'd done a, a copy of it in Swedish with the English text on the other on the other side. And it was beautiful fantastic choir and i was i didn't know but i got there and and um the the lessons were read among others by the prime minister's wife and the king's sister oh my god princess christina nice. so i was like okay this was this was quite the festival and i i, I turned around and looked next to me and it was the king's brother-in-law sitting next to me i was like oh hello what? this is this is this is this is the way to this is the way to kick off christmas so um that was great fun actually and really beautiful music so next year I highly recommend it if you're in Stockholm. The 20th of December goes a festival of nine lessons and carols at Storsjöskamp. Brilliant way to start Christmas and very accessible if you only speak English. A lot of us foreigners in Sweden are going to be on the move in the days and weeks ahead. So Becky, what are the most important developments to be aware of for people travelling abroad and within Sweden this Christmas? 
Yeah, so Swedes obviously celebrate Christmas on December 24th, but this basically means that most of the Christmas travel is going to be split between the 22nd and the 23rd. It means that things should be a little bit calmer than they were last year, for example, when everything was everyone was travelling on the 23rd and all the roads were completely packed with people. In terms of trains, things are looking pretty good at the moment, other than a derailment on the Kiruna Riksgränsen line in the far north of Sweden, which won't be fixed until early January. But there are rail replacement buses running. Other than that, most of the disruption so far is kind of planned engineering works, which shouldn't really affect people who have bought tickets and other services too much. Although if you're unlucky, you might face a longer journey time. So it's a good idea to plan ahead, give yourself a bit of wiggle room time-wise so you can afford to be delayed. And if you're not going to be traveling very far and you want to save a bit of money, tickets are usually a lot cheaper on the morning of the 24th. So if you can kind of pop over on the day, then that's a good way of saving some money. There are also some X2000 trains between Stockholm and Malmö. Stockholm and Gothenburg, Gothenburg and Malmö and Stockholm and Visserås. So those are the high-speed trains, right? Exactly, they're the high-speed trains, kind of intercity trains. Um, which you may have seen kind of headlines about cancellations and stuff like that. So some of those trains have been cancelled between December 19th and 22nd due to a lack of trains after a technical issue with a wheel and one of them on December 14th led SU who owned the trains to bring the entire fleet in for inspection. This sounds major, but it's only one departure per route and direction each day. So it's quite a small amount when put into context. I think this is like eight trains out of hundreds of trains and as far as I'm aware at the time of recording all the people who were booked onto affected departures have been sent an sms with information about how they can book a different train so hopefully that won't affect people by the time this goes out or you'll know if you've been affected by the time you hear this podcast anyway Uh, like I said for those driving roads are likely to be less busy than they were last year when pretty much everyone was traveling on the 23rd um, which Mm. I think was the day that schools broke up and kind of work people finished work and stuff The busiest part of the Swedish road network around Christmas is usually the E4 that runs between Helsingborg via Jönköping and Stockholm, Uppsala, Jävla and Sundsvall. Other holiday traffic hotspots are Road 40 between Gothenburg and Borås and the E22 from Norrköping to Kalmar. It is worth remembering too that the E6 is still closed at Stenungsund north of Gothenburg after a huge landslide earlier this year that I think we spoke about on the podcast. It's still not clear when it will be reopened, but basically it will not be reopened by Christmas. This road connects Gothenburg and Norway, so there may be queues as traffic is kind of rerouted via smaller roads. For those flying, so far it doesn't look like there'll be any major strikes or disruptions to air travel, not kind of the queues that we saw last year where things were kind of chaotic, especially at Arlanda. But make sure anyway that you arrive in time, you pack any presents that are wrapped in your checked luggage so they don't need to be unwrapped at security, because it will still be busy. Obviously it's Christmas, this is like the biggest time for travel. Great. Thanks for that roundup, Becky. And we'll add a link in the episode notes to our article where you can find up-to-date information. Can we talk about the giant straw goat in Yavla now? How's it going for the goat? Has it been set alight yet, James? Well, no, it hasn't. So, you know, that's good news for the goat. (laughs) But there are other problems this year. And uh, those problems are nothing to do with it being burned. And it has been burned 19 times in the past uh, 57 Christmases since they started Mm. putting the goat up. But it's got a novel problem this year. It's being eaten by birds. Now, this is due... You could sort of say perhaps it's an effect of climate change because it's due to the straw that it's made of having this year an unusual amount of grain on it. Now, this is because of the unusually wet summer in Sweden, uh, which meant that they didn't have enough dry straw. And so, you know, there's there's straw with grain and that grain attracts jackdaws or kajor, as they are known Mm. in Swedish. And they see the goat as a handy source of food and they're picking it apart. 
According to bird experts, jackdaws are among the world's most intelligent birds. And so news kind of travels fast on the jackdaw jungle telegram. <laughs> so they, they all find out about it and they all flock and they start pecking it to bits. And unfortunately, if you look at the live feed of the goat and you can find the live feed on the local, it's already looking a little bit threadbare. It's a very sad sight, really. Mm. So according to local officials, this is the first time the goat has suffered a fate like this. And the council are saying that, well, yes, we could scare away the birds, but they've got every right to eat the grain off this goat. They're following their natural instincts. We're friends of nature. And so we're going to just let them get on with it. I mean, I guess maybe it's harder to set the goat alight when there's not much straw left on it as well. So it's a novel well, it form of be... fire protection. <laughs> Perhaps. I don't know. So is this, is this going to go down to a, as, as a good year for the goat or a bad year? I think it's probably a bad year. I mean, you know, if you're going to go, go down in flames, right? <laughs> Fair enough. I mean, I guess we've got another another strange goat fate to add to our article of strange things that have happened to the Yavla goat over the years. So. It is a little more newsworthy. It is a little different. So we, we, that's perhaps something. Excellent. And thanks for telling us what jackdaws are called in uh, in Swedish. Yes, I'll put, kajor. I'll put kajor in my Swedish bird file and we'll add a link to the article that features the live feed where listeners can watch the Yavla goat and see how it fares over the rest of the Christmas period. So over the past few weeks, we've had loads of snow all over Sweden, but temperatures have risen quite a bit recently, particularly in southern parts of the country. Uh, so Becky, what are the prospects of Sweden getting a white Christmas this year? I wish I had a big map here I could point at and be a proper weather girl now. <laughs> <laughs> well, prospects are quite good. Obviously, a lot can change in the weather forecast between us recording this podcast and it going out. But at the time of recording, it looked like most of Sweden had pretty good chances of waking up to snow on Christmas Eve, with an exception for southern Skåne, which might miss out, kind of coastal areas of Skåne. It looks like things will be a bit rough in the days leading up to Christmas, windy with a lot of snowfall, but a bit quieter on the 24th with the snow sticking around for a couple of days. I don't really want it to snow, though, if I'm honest, because I won't be here and I don't want to miss it. But <laughs> <laughs> maybe if I'm Selfish. lucky, it will snow in the UK as well. <laughs> Great. Thanks, Becky. And uh, we'll post a link to our article where people can follow the weather conditions for the period. Let's turn our attention to politics now. In a couple of weeks' time, we'll publish an episode featuring our predictions for 2024. But one new development that has emerged in recent days is chatter about the possible creation of a new political party in Sweden. What do we know about this, James? Well, yeah, there has been a bit of chatter. Most publicly, this was discussed in Politikrummet, a podcast uh, from Expressen. And, you know, you, if you know people in the political sphere, there are a few people who are sort of talking about this as something that they think might be going on. The party they're talking about would be composed of basically of centre-right politicians who are opposed to cooperation with the Sweden Democrats, who dislike the Sweden Democrats, who think the De De Sweden Democrats are kind of a, a threat to democracy and, and to liberalism. And most of these people consider themselves to be more or less liberals. Yeah. The people who would be joining the party would be members or former members of the liberal centre and moderate parties. And, you know, they'd be capitalising on this dismay among centre-right voters and centre-right activists about the government's concessions to the far right. Right. At the moment, a lot of these voters have gone to the Social Democrats. There's a phenomenon called Magda Moderata. That's like moderates who vote for Magdalene Andersson, the um, leader of the Social Democrats. But there's a feeling that many centre-right voters would be attracted by a credible centre-right alternative, particularly when perhaps the Social Democrats 
start to outline their economic policies ahead of the next election, perhaps um, take them a bit further to the left in, in a way that might not necessarily attract former centre-right voters. The model for this is Moderatene. That's not Ul Christensen's party, but the Danish party started by the former right-wing prime minister, Lush Lokar Rasmussen. Mm. There are a few potential conspirators whose names have been floated. None of these are official. None of these have come mm. out and, 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 and talked about it. But the names that have been floated by Expressen are uh, grandees such as Cecilia Malmström, who's a European commissioner, Birgitta Olsson, both of those um, in the Liberal Party. Birgitta Olsson was a Europe minister in one of the uh, previous governments. Ulrika Schienström, who served as a state secretary to former Prime Minister Friedrich Reinfeldt. And Jan Jönsson, who is the Liberal Party's uh, leader in Stockholm. Mm. Now, as you can hear, some of these, some of these are uh, particularly like Jan Jönsson. He's, a, he's an active politician. Yeah. Is Jan Jonsson the one that uh, dressed up as a drag queen and read the He's children? the one who dressed up yeah. as a drag queen. So if you Google Jan Jonsson, you will find pictures of him dressed up spectacularly as a drag queen. He makes a very good drag queen. I can, um, see, I can see why he doesn't like working with the Sweden Democrats. Very much. you know, And I think you, this is something you see, you know, the, the, the Stockholm liberals in particular are very much against this cooperation with the uh, Sweden Democrats, mm. whereas the Liberal Party more broadly in other parts of the country is, is a little bit more in favour. So they're, 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 you've got these sort of regional splits within parties. The question now is, could this party succeed? Well, maybe, but it's mm. difficult. There are already eight parties in the Riksdag. So that makes it pretty crowded. And there's a 4% threshold to get in. You've got the Centre Party and the Liberal Party that are already under that 4% threshold. They also have to have a credible answer to who they would rule with. Yeah. And this, this is one of the things the centre party effectively tried to be this party. Mm. It tried to say, well, we're not going to work with the left and we're not going to work with the right. We're a centre right party that is, um, you know, it's independent and we, and we really dislike the centre of the Sweden Democrats. And that worked well up to a point. But it felt like voters had got into the mindset that really you had a choice between the left wing and yeah. the right wing. And if a party didn't have a credible answer to which side they would work with, then voters didn't find them to be a credible a, a credible proposition. Mm. And I think that's one of the things that's really that's really hurt the centre party. So would this new party have a, an answer to that conundrum? It's hard to know. And I think the other thing that they would maybe need in order to su succeed is some more big names, perhaps. Uh, you know, one name that's been floated is um, the former Prime Minister Friedrich Reinfeldt. If he were to support them, maybe that would give them a bit of the momentum that they need and perhaps preempt the collapse of one or more of these other liberal parties and that they could sort of perhaps subsume them into mm. something, into a bigger tent. It'll be interesting to see how this goes. I think another thing to point out, going back to kind of the Danish Moderatene, the reason that they kind of could do that in Denmark is because the threshold there is only 2% to get into parliament. Just because they could do it in Denmark, it's harder to do it in Sweden. So I think that's an important thing to kind of keep in, in mind there also. Yes, that's a really good point. Uh, so if you were to hazard a guess, how likely do you think it is that we will see a new centre-right party in 2024? I think there's a really good chance that we'll see one, that we'll see one that succeeds, that is to say, looks like it's doing well enough in the polls to get into Parliament. Mm. I think that's, the chance is less than 50%, but it could work. There have been a lot of new parties in recent years, and none of them since the Sweden Democrats have made it in. Miljöpartiet and the Sweden Democrats are those who've made it in in the last sort of 40 years. Yeah. So, you know, there it is a really, really, really tough thing to do. So the chances of this party succeeding, are, I think, are limited, but not non-existent. Thanks for those insights. And we'll link in the notes to Richard's politics column from this week, where this is one of the topics he writes about. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So on last week's episode, we touched on how hard it can be for immigrants to find work in Sweden. And we want to revisit that theme now. But at the weekend, the local's editor and our regular panellist here, Emma Lovgren, wrote an article titled If Skilled Foreigners Can't Find Work, Does Sweden Have a Talent Shortage? And this is also a topic that's been explored in depth by Amanda Herzog, the founder of Intertalent, a business that offers consulting and online education to international job seekers. Now, much like Ibra Idris, whose story we spoke about last week, Amanda writes on her LinkedIn page that it took her 13 months and 800 plus applications to get her first industry-specific job in Sweden. We're going to listen now for a few minutes to a chat I had with Amanda Herzog this week. And I started by asking why she thought it took so long to get that first job. I moved to Sweden as an exchange student from Orlando, Florida in the U.S., Tianjin University, and I thought that I could find a job pretty quickly after graduation, maybe within three months, because I had a good um, work experience. I knew how to interview. I felt like I was qualified, and I quickly learned that was not the case. I actually was getting interviews. I was getting maybe one to three interviews per month for about mm. 13 months, yet I was not getting a job offer. So what I decided to do was to interview Swedish recruiters and HR professionals. And what I started to learn by digging slowly in more is, for example, when I was interviewing, I did a mock interview and I learned that I was interviewing the American way which is very different than the Swedish way. The American way is you need to be confident. You need to sell yourself. You need to talk about your qualifications and why you can get the job done. In Sweden, they want you to start first with who are you? What do you do outside of work? Why is this job motivating you? No one cares about that in the U.S. and maybe in many other countries around the world. So my short version to answer this is that Sweden has a very specific, unique way of basically hiring people. Their hiring system is very different from the rest of the world. And I think people really underestimate the cultural difference and the cultural integration, learning how to interview the Swedish way versus the way that's worked for many years for them in their own countries or other countries. 
So if we go back to your LinkedIn profile, you also write there that it only took you two months to get your next job. So why why did it go so quickly the second time around? Um, I said during the first 13 months, I was getting one to three interviews per month just off of my qualifications. But once I changed the, the cultural aspect and how I was interviewing, how I was making the layout of my CV that would be specifically for the Swedish job market, I was getting maybe, I think in total within two months, I had close to 15 different companies contact me for interviews. So you could say it it doubled or tripled just by the cultural adaptation. But the other thing that was different is that I had a, a new work experience on my resume. So an advice that I give to job seekers is once you have your your first in and your first Swedish company on your resume, you will significantly increase your chances of being contacted and hired because you sort of have that stamp of approval by Swedish society and, and professional organizations. Mm. We had a guest on the podcast last week who's a a Syrian asylum seeker who said that he had applied for over 2000 jobs. And, you know, when he was in Syria, he actually got a job offer from a Swedish company, but that was before he decided to move to Sweden. He said no to that job. Then he eventually moved to Sweden and started applying from Sweden and found that it was a completely different situation. And we often hear that Sweden has an international talent shortage, but you've questioned whether that's really the case. And what are your thoughts there? Yeah, so I did actually see that story um, about his experience, and I mm. think it's very common. A lot, what a lot of foreign talent say is uh, Sweden is recruiting a lot of people internationally and bringing them in for certain jobs, but there's sort of a, a running joke in the international community that once you're in Sweden, they no longer want you. The deeper I go into solving this issue, what I'm hearing is a lot of people have done all of the work. They have really great CVs. They have good experience. Sure, there is an, an increase in their probability of getting hired when they learn to culturally integrate, but after a while, they hit a wall. We hit a wall where there are people who they no longer need a visa sponsorship. So that's not easier to avoid because it's it's complicated. They don't know the price. They don't know how the system works. They're afraid of making a mistake. But there are companies out there who are working to find solutions to this, who are also challenging the, the policies in the migration system. So I give them solutions of, well, here are some companies I would say you can contact and they can give you an idea of what the process is like. And is it really as let's say, uh, challenging as you think it is. When I speak to these companies, they're processing visas and getting approved quite a bit as well. So maybe the situation isn't as complicated as they think. Another thing that I do is I say, look at the the chain of command. Something that I've learned is that a lot of Swedish recruiters and HR professionals, they are willing to hire the talent. I actually get private messages on LinkedIn on a weekly basis from Swedish recruiters saying, I agree with you. I want to help. What can I do? And the, re- the the biggest issue here in the chain of command usually comes to the hiring manager, uh, the CEO of a company, especially a small company, or someone who's at the top who's not deeply involved in the hiring process or understanding recruiting or when it comes to bringing on employees, they just have their opinion that, yeah, of course, we want a native suite. Yeah, I understand that, but you don't have it. So you need to start talking 
more closely with um, your HR and, and recruiting professionals and listening to them and their recommendations, or looking at other case studies of companies that have positively adapted. Um, and the last thing I want to add about this is I've heard that there's a new trend now where smaller companies are actually starting to become more open-minded to hiring international professionals because they are willing to invest in this employee as a, a long-term investment for the, the longevity of their company. Whereas these larger organizations, they're, they're clunky. They have to go through multiple different departments to get approved. A lot more mistakes are made in the visa and hiring process with internationals. So that's a new trend that I'm starting to see in, in the last year. Really interesting. Um, just on the other side of that equation, what advice would you give to any listeners who might be struggling to break into the Swedish job market? One specific piece of advice I give is make yourself a specialist. For example, I've done marketing, I've done social media marketing, content marketing, um, maybe copywriting. But I, if I want to, I can say I am a specifically a content specialist. Also focus on your strengths. Maybe you don't have very good Swedish. Don't compete with native Swedish speakers. Maybe you should focus on the language of, of your, your home country and you can focus on international companies or companies who work with these international, someone from your homeland, if that is their client, you need to focus on making yourself um, an asset in that way. Um, and the final thing I'll say is focus a lot on networking because in Sweden, they actually put a lot more emphasis on hiring someone through a referral or through networking, even more so than qualifications. So that, that's just some basic advice. But the number one advice I would give people is to focus on the Swedish um, cultural differences in the job market, because that could be the biggest difference for you if you feel like you're stuck and you've done everything else. You've just been listening to an excerpt of a chat I had with Amanda Herzog. One other thing she spoke about that we didn't include here was that in her conversations with employers, she often challenged them on requirements for fluency in Swedish. Becky, do you agree that employers in Sweden overstate the importance of fluency in Swedish? And how would you recommend they think about this when hiring? Well, fluency is a bit of a scale, isn't it, really? And I think what Amanda said about being willing to hire someone who can speak at least a bit of Swedish rather than being completely fluent is definitely a good first step. Obviously, there are some jobs where you really do need to speak the language, but even there it varies. Like lots of people will be able to carry out a sales call with a customer, but fewer would maybe be able to understand and analyse a complicated legal document, for example. One thing I do find interesting about this discussion is that when you look at unemployment figures, people born outside of Sweden are overrepresented, like considering the size of, of the population that are born outside of Sweden. Now, that's often used politically to kind of indicate maybe that we're lazy, we're not contributing to society, you know, we can't be bothered getting a job, things like that. But I do think it's important to look at those figures in this context too. Lots of immigrants really are trying to enter the labour market, but there are barriers in the way which do genuinely make it harder for us to get jobs even if we're actually qualified and that's not just like bureaucratic legislative things like work permits but also these cultural barriers that you may maybe aren't as visible that Amanda spoke about like how you are in interviews what your CV looks like which can all affect how the interviewer perceives you and whether they choose you over another candidate and that's not even touching on things like having a non-western or non-european sounding name which can be another barrier as we saw in Ibra's case last week Lots of these barriers are overcome by knowing someone who can put in a good word for you, like Amanda said. People who've just arrived in Sweden, maybe for a few months ago, who don't know anyone yet, obviously don't have those connections. But once you've had your first Swedish job, even if that's a voluntary position, built up a social and professional network, then it does get easier. 
Yeah. I mean, this thing about this, this, this thing about language is difficult, isn't it? Because obviously, if you speak English or Swedish, you can communicate. If you, you can communicate in English in most Swedish workplaces yeah. with your colleagues. And in many Swedish workplaces, also with customers, even in the service sector, in the retail sector, we see that in the large cities, you will often go to a restaurant or a bar or a shop and people will speak to you in English. Um, that's because they've arrived here and they don't speak Swedish, but they do speak at least good enough English to do their job there. It's good if, if, if companies can have that sort of flexibility while sort of still encouraging people to learn Swedish as they go, because that's also important. I think, you know, in the long run, it's good on all sorts of levels if people can, can learn Swedish and talk with their colleagues, their Swedish colleagues in the language of Sweden. But to have that sort of slightly more imaginative approach to it is good. But obviously, if you don't speak English or Swedish, mm. that's going to be a huge problem. There's no one size fits all solution, but it, it is good if companies can companies and employers can be can can be more imaginative on this. I think a lot of the time the impression that I've got is that recruiters almost have like speaking Swedish, speaking fluent Swedish as one of the key competencies. When a lot of the time you could have someone that ticks all of the boxes for a kind of a job application and maybe their Swedish isn't completely perfect or maybe they're still learning. In that situation, you could look at it like, okay, I have this candidate who just needs to take some language courses and then they're perfect. Rather than I have a candidate who speaks fluent Swedish but doesn't have this whatever master's degree and whatever I need. It's, it's a lot easier to you know support someone doing a few courses in Swedish so that their language skills are up to scratch than you know teach them an entire degree's worth of specialist competencies or you know an entire career's worth of of experience i think i think there's definitely something to be said there for swedish not being like the key competency you look for in in an applicant of course it, i mean it so much depends on the job as well i mean obviously if your job is to write uh, long texts in swedish i mean you can get a job as a journalist in the swedish language if you didn't speak or write excellent swedish mm. it, it very much depends doesn't it but yeah. you know it would be nice if it would be nice if employees were a bit a bit more flexible and i think particularly when they're looking at people whose native language is clearly not swedish but also not english because if, if you apply for a job and they see you're a native english speaker they sometimes have a, a little they sometimes see that as a as a positive and say well this is good this is going to work fine but if you if you have a name that is either arabic or Italian or whatever, they then they look at it in a slightly different way and think, well, you don't speak Swedish and therefore, and they don't necessarily think that you're going to speak good enough English to for, for, for that to work. And I think that perhaps they should be a bit more open-minded about that. There's definitely an aspect of privilege there. There's definitely a privilege if you, ha if you happen to be a native English speaker, mm. without a doubt. Amanda had some interesting thoughts about that as well, about um, smaller employers in particular, she said, were coming around to this way of thinking, mm. um, whereas bigger companies are more slow moving and the recruitment goes through more people and yeah. they can be less, much less flexible. So her advice was to to look at smaller companies. I definitely was. I definitely agree with that. I mean, my first job when I came to Sweden was with a, was with a small company and I think that it was definitely that sort of that sort of imaginative approach to to recruitment that was that that, that really helped. And these big companies with their policy documents and their, their their list of requirements that perhaps doesn't always take into account the varied nature of of, of people's circumstances. Mm. And, and and you wish they would think more imaginatively. I think also in a lot of cases, once you actually get in front of someone, it's a lot easier to convince them of the the kind of benefits you'd bring to the company. But if you can't even get them to kind of bring you in for an interview, I think that's, like I said, one, one of these big barriers. I don't know how much you can do on an individual level, though. I think that's something that recruiters need to take in mind.
Okay, we'll wrap it up there and we hope all our listeners enjoy the Christmas period and that you're getting time to rest up and recharge. A big thank you to everyone who listens to the podcast and if you like what you hear, please consider telling a friend or leaving a review. Our panellists today were Becky Waterton and James Savage. Our sound engineer is Rhys Edwards. I'm Paul O'Mahony and we'll be back next week with a look back at the biggest stories making the news in Sweden this year. Until then, take care. That's all for this week's free edition of Sweden in Focus. If you'd like to hear a full-length version of the podcast each week, as well as an additional midweek episode with more interviews and analysis, please upgrade to Membership Plus. Make sure to check the episode notes for details on how to upgrade. Sweden in Focus is a podcast by The Local Europe. Our sound engineer is Rhys Edwards. The publisher is James Savage.